And there we go. Well, thank you for having me here. I was uh, real excited when um, Mark um, invited, invited me to come and be with you this morning, especially to be part of this series that um, Mark is in the middle of, um, Life-Giving Church. And uh, that is what we are called to be um, It's just fantastic that you are leaning into this topic and um, taking, taking steps to more and more be characterized as a life-giving church. Um, my uh, job with EFCA Central is to encourage the multiplication of churches. Um, that's church planting. Um, and we want to multiply life-giving churches. And that means we have to be life-giving churches. Churches that give life to those here in the church community and life spilling out into the broader community. Um, we're so far, we've looked at boldness, of uh, living life with a bold love. We've looked at gospel-created compassion. Today, we're going to look at gospel clarity, and if I understand right, next week will be gospel humility. And um, so today, as we look at gospel clarity, we want to make sure that we don't accidentally limit the gospel to the future but make sure we are living in that gospel now. In other words, as I heard a pastor recently say, I don't want to settle for pie in the sky when I die. I want steak on the plate while I wait. And um, that is what the Lord gives us in the glory of his gospel. A promised future that is glorious and a life-filled present where we serve him and our world is impacted and he is glorified. Um, so that is my prayer for us this morning that we will see his gospel with that kind of clarity and we will live in it. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Um, Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is sharp, that it is active, that um, it is able to do the things that you desire it to do, including bringing life to your people. Father, we ask that uh, your spirit would have his way, would use your word, and would accomplish your purposes this morning. We ask this, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, I'm going to start today by quoting... 
that's a long way down when, uh, when you're my size. Uh, by the way, because it's distracting, it's six foot eight and 300 pounds. Okay. Um, now, I want to start today by quoting a um, famous early 20th century theologian. His um, name is W.C. Fields. He said, Everybody's got to believe in something. I believe I'll have another beer. He's also famous for saying, I am free from all prejudice. I hate everyone equally. And um, in the completion of his politically incorrect things that he couldn't say today, he said, women are like elephants. I like to look at them, but I wouldn't want to own one. Okay. Now... Now, 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 I like to laugh, um, but, but my point there is uh, if we were looking for the opposite of, of what the gospel creates in us and in a culture, um, W.C. Fields kind of typified it, but the story goes, and I wasn't there, um, but the story goes that as he was approaching the end of his life, um, he began carrying a a Bible around in the uh, hotels between shows, which was weird because he was famous for having no place for religion whatsoever. And somebody said, what are you doing? And his response was, I'm looking for loopholes, my friend loopholes. Okay. The bad news is there are no loopholes. Good news is that if he had been able to grasp the clarity of the gospel, he would have seen that it's more wonderful than he could have possibly imagined. And and that is our opportunity today um, to see what he couldn't and um, and to grab hold of it. So as we um, look at the passage that Amber read, um, it it breaks down in a couple parts. And the first is uh, Paul is saying that we try to persuade people. He starts off, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. So um, when we look at why was he trying to persuade people, why was he exhorting us to persuade people, it's because first we know the fear of the Lord, and um, then he makes it clear that it's not to prove ourselves. Sometimes we try to convince people out of a insecurity about all kinds of things. And in the gospel, we are clear to proclaim with complete security. So he's saying there's no um, insecurity whatsoever. So we have no need to prove ourselves. 
Um, rather, he goes on to say the Corinthians can answer the others um, who take pride in what is seen and ignore the heart. Um, he says, we are not committing ourselves to you again, but we are giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. And then he gives a charge. Um, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. You see, they were charged to be out of their mind. So the charge was against them. And he's simply saying if it seems that way, he will not defend it. Um, he says, but the conduct shows him to be in his right mind while also being passionate about his ministry. And then finally, when he's looking at the why of um, this call to persuade others, he says it's because Christ's love compels us. We find this in verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay. So he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically the work done on the Christ where Jesus died for others. Therefore, therefore all died. Um, and he died that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Okay, there's a story, and I think it's true, about some early pioneer settlers that were traveling across the Great Plains. And as they were days away from anywhere, they saw on the horizon, rising up before them, a wildfire a grass fire that was sweeping across the land. And this is a crisis. Um, the conventional wisdom would say there is no escape. And one of the members of the traveling party did something very unusual. While everyone else was trying to figure out which direction they should run, in their hopeless, fruitful, fruitless run from that thing that cannot be outrun, he lit a fire. And they, they watched 
And um, this little fire spread, blackening all of the, the grass, creating this big burnt area right before them. And then following his instructions, they stepped into the burnt area. So the little fire continued to spread, and as the great fire approached, there was nothing in their space to burn. So the wind pushed that fire around them, and they were delivered that day from that fire. Now, the reason I tell that story um, isn't just because it's a good story, but it's because it exposes a facet of what Jesus was doing on the cross and explaining what Paul meant when he said, when one died, we all died. Because, you see, just like that fire, God's judgment is inescapable. And it is, it is good and it is right. Because it declares who God is and that he is a just God. But Jesus on the cross prepares that place where God's judgment is satisfied and there remains a safe place. Because you see, the wages of sin is death. That means the price to be paid for my sin is death. That means I have to die for my sins. Unless someone else can pay the price. And that is exactly what Jesus did. And and some of you are very nice people. Some. But I doubt that even the nicest would be willing to die for my sin. Um, I just don't think you would. But even if, you, even if I'm wrong, even if somebody said, yes, I will do that, we have a problem. Because Mr. or Ms. Nice person out there that I'm talking to, you have a price for your sin too. And as a sinner, I can't die for yours. And as a sinner, you can't die for mine. But the one who was without sin can pay the price so that we can escape judgment. Um, The gospel is more than that. But the gospel is not less than that. Um, So um, Paul here focuses us on that death and the way that the wrath of God was turned away by that death. So, we persuade. We try to persuade. And then um, the um, second part of the passage is that everything has changed. You see, the 
clarity of the gospel shows us that it's not just a little different. It has changed. Um, that starts by Paul declaring that we no longer uh, regard any person according to their flesh. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And what that means is that um, people aren't evaluated on a, on a worldly standard and values that derive from living as if one's present physical life is all that matters. And um, Paul goes as far as to say that once he regarded Jesus just according to his physical life, that is, he considered Christ to be a false messiah. Um, and, and he saw the cross as God's righteous curse on um, on, on one who was suffering. So that's how I used to see Jesus, Paul says. But then everything changed. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So we now live in the reconciliation. He starts by, he defines reconciliation um, in verse 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He continues on, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So as we define reconciliation, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God was not counting their trespasses against them. And then in Christ, God was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That is the gospel entrusted to us. That means if we're going to be a life-giving church, we must have clarity about that message and let it spill out of us um, to those around us for our own hearts to hear it afresh into the broader community because this is where life is found. Then in verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So, we are ambassadors. An ambassador is the one who, um, in our context, 
um, represents our country to other worlds, represents our government to other governments. In the old world, it was where the king represented his, um, his reign and himself to other nations. And um, that's the way that it's being used here as our King Jesus has selected us to represent him in his interests. Um, so we are ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Paul says, we implore you. He's persuading again. Please be reconciled to God. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And here, in the last verse of the chapter, verse 21, which I'm going to have to confess is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. And um, this is what it says. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And uh, there's a lot of pronouns there, and we don't want to misunderstand it. So, um, so for our sake, he, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son. So for our sake, the Father made the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin, even though he knew no sin. Okay? So Jesus was born with no sin. And then Jesus lived a life where he committed no sin. He lived life exactly the way it was supposed to be. So he had no sin. So he is uniquely qualified. And what happened was the one, the only one who had no sin, was made to be sin. Okay, so, so all of my sin and all of its ugliness and all of its penalty and all of your sin was placed upon Jesus. And then something wild happened. The righteousness of Jesus was placed upon you. The righteousness of Jesus was placed upon me. That means when God the Father looks at you in Christ, he sees the righteousness of God. Because that's the kind of righteousness Jesus had. Like, whoa! Sometimes this is called the great exchange. Where on the cross, everything the Old Testament had been talking about reaches a point of clarity. And sin is removed because the price is paid, and then God did more than anyone was anticipating, more than anyone could have asked or imagined. He gave his righteousness 
to his people. Now, I, I don't feel that righteous today. But there's a good chance you don't feel that righteous today. But God's word declares what's true. And his truth transcends. It rises above our feelings. It rises above our circumstances. So what he says is true. It's true. If you are in Christ, you are new. And you're so new that when the Father looks at you, he sees the very righteousness of Jesus. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to I gotta get this right for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God Um, we have a brand new identity in Christ when I, I think about gospel clarity Um, This is the spot. But the other spot um, that I I could have gone to today is found in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And um, don't worry, I'm not going to preach a second sermon. But I am going to read God's word for us to hear afresh what this amazing gospel does. Beginning in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If you hear how this is the same event and the same thing that Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians. And raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay. Paul says he did that. And if we understand what he's saying, it's weird. He's saying that somehow, even while I'm here, with this frail body trying to speak the word of God, I'm also sitting next to Jesus in the heavenly places because I'm wrapped up in him, okay? Um, That's weird. That's really hard for me to understand, but it's what God declares to be true. And just so you don't misunderstand, it's not because of who I am or because I happen to be preaching. Each of us here Who knows Jesus, while we're sitting here, are in some miraculous way also in the presence of the Father next to Jesus in the heavenly places. Because we're so wrapped up in him that we're there. Okay? It's weird. But if we will believe what he says, it's an amazing promise full of amazing security and a place of amazing peace no matter what's happening around us. 
And I came awfully close to preaching when I said I wasn't going to, didn't I? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you know, I used, to under, I used to misunderstand that. I used to read that as don't boast, it's impolite to boast. Now he's saying... God did all of this. Don't boast because you have nothing to boast about. Because it was all by grace, received by faith, which is trust. So we trust the truth of what God has told us he did for us. And we are transformed. And he describes that transformation. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's the way the water flows. We walk in good works because of what God has done. God doesn't do things for us because we walked in good works. It can get really confusing if the water flows backwards. And if the water flows backwards, the pipe... We don't want the water flowing backwards. Okay. He did this so that in response to the thing that we cannot earn, we have the privilege of walking in those good works. And part of those good works is living a life that gives life to those around us. When we do that together, we're a life-giving church. So this is the gospel. So some implications as I land the plane. And I promised to land it really fast. And I know I've used my credibility by preaching when I said I wasn't going to preach the second sermon. But we have the privilege of clarity. There is no loophole. Praise God. Because our salvation is real. This shows us why Jesus is the one way to God, the one and only way. Paul realizes that when God brings a person from death to life, there is nothing God cannot ask. And that's sobering and that's wonderful. God can ask anything of me because I am dead. We are compelled by the love of God. That is, his love for us, that love compels us. His love for the lost. This book is full of his declaration of his love for his good and broken creation that's in need of redemption. With the pinnacle of that creation being lost people and God loves them. Therefore, I love them. Therefore, you are called to love them. And then our love for him. Because when we meditate on what he's done, our, our, his love for us reflects back in our love for him. So, friends, we are ambassadors. We live this message of reconciliation. And it is always right 
to implore you, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious gospel. Thank you that we have the amazing privilege of walking in it. We uh, thank you that you um, want our churches to be life-giving churches. We thank you that you want Bethesda to be a life-giving church. We thank you that our neighborhoods where we live um, need your love and your life spilling out of us. We thank you for that amazing call. We thank you that we are a people of privilege because you have given us the message of reconciliation. And it's in the one who did it all, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Well, that is good stuff. God made him.